So most of these companies are getting uh, away from uh, uh, top-down bureaucratic structures and embracing more networked, uh, interdependent, uh, small unit structure. And this is because at the end of the day, organizations are trying to mimic uh, what is happening in the market. And in the market, what we have seen is the unbundling of the firm and uh, the formation of this, uh, I would say, micro-entrepreneurial units, teams that have uh, increasingly more capability to to um, impact markets. And Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curve Vendors Podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curve Vendors this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and co-create. Curve Vendors, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. I want to let you know that we've launched a brand new website, including a brand new blog, a resource section with links to all of our previous podcast episodes, my Inc. and Forbes articles, and a new intimate community called the Noor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about their strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. The North Forum is also where you'll find the show notes, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. For example, Simone and the team at Boundaryless have published a fantastic new position paper titled New Foundations of Platform Ecosystem Thinking, Designing Organizations and Products for a Changing World. You can find it in the North Forum, so join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is Simone Cicero, who is CEO of Boundaryless out of Rome, Italy. Simone, welcome. Hello. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to have this uh, conversation. It's great to have you. For those who may not know as much about you or Boundaryless, can you talk for a few minutes about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? Well, let's try to be brief. So basically, I've been working in uh, for long uh, in the context of open source adoption, let's say, especially in the early 2000s, you know, adoption of open source technologies and software in, in the corporate uh, world. 
then uh, after that, I've been uh, working a lot in telco, which um, it's the industry probably when uh, where we have been uh, witnessing most of the impacts of the digital this digital trans- deep transformations that we have been living through. First, most likely, you know, you, you can uh, imagine, you know, for example, what uh, did it mean for the telco industry to engage with the uh, creation of the iPhone, you know, that was a kind of a industry reset, let's say. And uh, that uh, led me to become more and more interested into platforms and, and ecosystems, dynamics. So essentially business models and organizational models that uh, uh, leverage a lot of what's outside an organization more than what's inside or just what's inside. And from there, basically in 2013, I have started to work on uh, evolving uh, some of the business design tools that uh, most of your listeners, I believe, will have used, more specifically the business model canvas that at the time was starting to me to be, let's say, not enough to analyze a model the landscape of business that was unfolding. So this idea of companies that... uh, uh, organizations that essentially leverage on uh, large ecosystems of entities that interact with each other as producers and consumers, or more generally, you know, developers, or, you know, this idea that a business is no more about just controlling production, but more about enabling uh, interaction in systems. And uh, from 2013, where I launched the Platform Design Toolkit for the first uh, time, I have been basically evolving this methodology, integrating it with uh, more extensions, you know, for example, for opportunity landscaping or validation or growth analysis. And, uh, uh, you know, basically now I'm running this uh, small uh, company that has uh, more than 70,000 users all over the world, has been training uh, publicly more or less uh, more than a thousand people. Most of them are certified uh, through our boot camps. And, uh, yeah, I've been working in, uh, you know, across the world, uh, small and big uh, companies, I would say ranging from uh, small, uh, I don't know, social entrepreneur-driven startups uh, up and up to the UN. So I would say we have a fairly dif- um, diverse uh, set of users in our, in our, in our ecosystem. You know? So this is what Bundleless has been doing. And now we are also looking into increasingly into how do you organize internally inside your organization as a network, as a platform, I would say, becoming more entrepreneurial and more ecosystem driven in your strategy, innovation and execution. So this is pretty much what Bundleless does, creating open tools and the conversations around the future of organizing. So... What uh, can you focus on? Can you comment on the top two, three trends you've observed organizations that you work with, organizations that have embraced BMC or even your platform design toolkit, PDT? Mm-hmm. What are some of the key trends that or lessons they've learned from this pandemic? Okay, from the pandemic specifically. Well, I mean, the pandemic, uh, it's been a kind of, I would say, a strong acceleration. So, you know, basically uh, has been just 
I must say, exacerbating or in general amplifying, I would say, trends that uh, I would say were existing already before the pandemic. And well, I mean, the major trend that uh, everybody you know, has been experiencing is this, you know, the, the emergence of uh, these uh, large players that uh, have been, uh, you know, eroding the market of uh, many incumbents uh, uh, in some spaces like, you know, the Amazons and, and the Googles and Apples of the last decade, I would say, while, I mean, in the last few years, Possibly, and maybe the last couple of years, uh, possibly this trend has been, uh, I would say, taking steam, even thanks to the pandemic, with regards to more vertical spaces, I would say, more uh, increasingly, for example, in business to business or in spaces that uh, characterized by more complex workflows and business processes. I mean, for example, in, in education or in uh, freight uh, logistics or in uh, as personal services or jobs, you know, like uh, professional career development or healthcare. So all these spaces where, which are not, I would say, for example, short-term rentals or just getting a ride on a car. So more complex spaces where increasingly new players are emerging that are using this pattern of uh, marketplaces and platforms. So basically connecting producers and consumers instead of uh, controlling the whole stack, you know, but more like enabling these interactions in the system. So these new entrants, I would say, increasingly getting into these niche spaces that often are the spaces where most of the incumbents were still thriving, I would say, even after the digital, you know, revolutions of the last decade. And increasingly this uh, D2C, direct-to-customers uh, companies, eroding, you know, the, the incumbents' uh, business. So this is certainly one key trend. So more of the economy is, uh, I would say, departing from the firm, I would say, age, uh, more entering into this marketplace age. And at the same time, and by the way, this is mainly because of the plummeting transaction costs, you know, uh, basically internet is getting everywhere. And on the other hand, another big trend, it's uh, the impacts that this is having on organizational dynamics. So now, for example, most of the protagonists of this rampant uh, economy, digital ecosystem-driven economy, is uh, are companies that embrace what I call radical divisionality. So they are really organized in ways that uh, profit and loss is uh, pervasive inside the organization, and uh, in a way that entrepreneurship becomes uh, possibly the most uh, important trait of leadership. Uh, so most of these companies are getting uh, away from uh, uh, top-down bureaucratic structures and embracing more networked, uh, interdependent, uh, small unit structure. And this is because at the end of the day, organizations are trying to mimic uh, what is happening in the market. And in the market, what we have seen is the unbundling of the firm and uh, the formation of these, uh, I would say, micro-entrepreneurial units, teams that have uh, increasingly more capability to to um, impact markets and create products and so on. And you can see that uh, in, in things that are, for example, the way that, I don't know, uh, upstarts conquer new markets by, you know, for example, creating national profit and loss in independent uh, teams that can develop a new market like a new city or a new nation. But also you can see that in, uh, for example, the traits of uh, 
companies uh, such as uh, a Chinese company I'm, uh, we are working with in the last couple of uh, years, which is very famous uh, all over the world, called the uh, Higher Group. That is based on 4,000 micro-entrepreneurial units that make up a company of 80,000 people where all these micro-entrepreneurial units have their own profit and loss. So this is pretty much what I am seeing. On one hand, from the age of the firm into the age of marketplaces, and on the other hand, from bureaucratic top-down structures into networked organizations made of uh, micro-entrepreneurial units. You and I both know Alex Osterwalder, Yves Panur, the, the authors of The Business Model Generation. Why do you believe after a decade of publishing the book, Business Model Canvas and that approach is still popular, still pervasive? And how does your platform design toolkit enhance it? Well, I mean, Business Model Canvas is popular because it's been a massive uh, reality check for uh, many that have been, you know, wasting time into imagining products that uh, were impossible, you know. So, so the business model canvas with uh, with its, um, uh, you know, uh, clarity and directness uh, has been pushing people all over the world to really, you know, get their ideas into, you know, how do I make revenues? How do I connect with these customers? What are my cost structures? And so on. So I think it was a massive improvement in democratizing innovation and it still is. And I think the question of uh, how do I extend it? More in general, the work we are doing with Platform Design Toolkit, uh, it builds on the business model canvas. It builds on uh, the tradition of service design and design thinking more in general. It builds on the tradition of lean startup and customer development. So it's more like uh, taking what we had from the product age, from the product solution age. So where we used to say, you know, I need to develop a solution for a problem into the age of ecosystems, where increasingly we are saying, you know, I need to create an amplifier that allows this ecosystem of people interacting to do it better, to learn faster and to transact more readily and more uh, and faster and at a much growth, a much bigger growth rate. So, you know, when you move from the age of pipelines into the age of networks, then you need different tools because you need to think differently. So the things that we have been bringing to the design uh, community, these frameworks, are essentially there for people to embrace a different way of looking at things. So to start to focus uh, not only on the business model, for example, but also on, uh, for example, the learning model. So how do you learn faster? So these are the, this is one of the questions we answer when in our design practice, we push people to look into what we call the learning engine. Because one big uh, learning, uh, you know, just to repeat, that we had in the last uh, couple of decades is that increasingly the most important thing when a business starts to be overconnected, interconnected, is really to become the place where everybody can learn faster. And on the other hand, you know, network effects now are becoming so widespread that there is no more I would say a product without a network. So whatever product you think about, this product, it needs to embrace, it needs to enable certain dynamics of network effects so that it can accrue value in parallel to a bigger number of users that interact with the product. So, so that's the key point where I would say our business model, our platform design practice 
extends and builds upon the business model canvas or other service design or lean thinking tools that uh, people have been using for, for more than a decade now. And indeed, it doesn't want to replace them. It's just another uh, set of tools that uh, entrepreneurs and designers can add to their uh, arsenal of uh, you know, tools that they use to create a new you know, value creation propositions, uh, value propositions on the market. I was fascinated by your comments around the trend you see in the midst of COVID of the organizational dynamics and, you know, PNL is becoming more pervasive and entrepreneurship really becoming new leadership trend within organizations. Uh, Simona, what are the biggest challenges you see, particularly mature companies in mature industries, right? Everybody says, I'm not, we're not Amazon. We're not hire group, right? So how do large mature companies, mature organizations adapt? How, what are the bigger challenges you've seen in them becoming more entrepreneurial and them really creating more of that PNL mindset, that entrepreneurial leadership mindset within an organization? Well, I would say three, maybe. One is certainly in an inertia. I will name that, them so I don't forget. Another one is culture and another one is policy. So let me explain. So first of all, inertia. So why? Because, you know, all the companies that are successful don't want to change. That's a clear issue uh, in management. And indeed, the, the traits of the most successful companies all over the world, the one essential trait is that they have been changing while they were successful. And that's another and a very important aspect that normally lead, you know, relies really on, on the leadership of the executives. So you need a visionary CEO to understand that uh, as uh, my, I would say, my friend, uh, Jean Grumin, the CEO of, uh, of Hire, he used to say, you know, either you change or you become a museum exhibit. And that's what many companies, are, I would say, are deemed to become if they don't embrace this continuous change perspective, especially in a world that is changing faster and faster. You know, that's, uh, that's what, uh, what we have today. It's, this world, uh, it doesn't allow you to think in terms of uh, five years or, or 10 years anymore. You know, you, you, you don't have this luxury anymore. On the other hand, I would say culture, and uh, this is, uh, for example, our culture of work, you know, our, our culture of uh, our attachment to this idea of a job. You know, I don't want to be offensive, but I could quote uh, uh, the complaint anthropologist David uh, Graeber that uh, uh, we lost at the end of the last year when uh, he, he was talking about bullshit jobs, you know, so you have this... Uh, you know, incredible amount of people that have these uh, very outstanding titles, but in the end of the day, they just often hide behind bureaucratic structures inside organizations that uh, allow organizations to accumulate a terrific amount of debt. And, uh, you know, I want to quote Clay Shirky here when he said, you know, collapse is the ultimate form of simplification. So what you tend to see in organizations like that, that accumulate terrific amount of, of debt, uh, yeah, they tend to go out of business at some point in a rather fast uh, way when conditions uh, change, I would say, in a fast and exponential way. And third, policy. So, of course, for example, if you think about Europe and you think about 
how can I make an organization based on the idea that uh, the salary of my employees, it's radically dependent on the upsides that they generate in terms of creating, for example, ultra-scalable or ultra-marginal products. And this is normally very hard to attain in Europe, uh, if I think about the uh, corporate law or the labor protection laws that we deal with, it's very hard, I would say, to design an organization that pushes for entrepreneurship and, and for skin in the game. We tend to see, especially in Europe, this relationship between capital and labor, I would say, uh, management and labor in a very conflictual way. And instead, from my experience, what I've been seeing in China or even in other places, in, in, in well, China is probably the place where this is happening at the moment in the most uh, clear way. This idea of uh, having your salary heavily dependent on your performance and your capability to innovate and create uh, new revenue streams, it's much more easy to to adopt in the organizational model with respect to what uh, we live in in Europe or or in the US. On your website, I found a fabulous position paper on this new foundation of platform ecosystem thinking. And several years after your platform design toolkit, you talk about how the context, how the context and scope of platform uh, ecosystem thinking has changed. Talk a little bit about the key ideas in that in that position paper and where and how do you see platform ecosystem thinking going? Right. Well, that's a great question. So what has changed, you know, probably is not that things have changed in the last seven years, but most likely we've been putting some more attention lately, also because of the effects of the change. So everybody listening to this podcast will uh, certainly recognize the nexus that we are living, you know, this kind of uh, paradigm shift that we seem to be living, you know. So the three aspects that I think we have been focusing the most in terms of uh, understanding or sense-making this change essentially related to three main aspects. So one, for sure, is this uh, crazily changing risk landscape related to environmental uh, degradation and uh, ecosystemic uh, degradation. So we all, everybody's talking about climate change and extinctions of uh, many, many species and, and uh, pollution. So essentially what we, we understood in the last, uh, you know, couple of, in terms of, uh, at least in terms of public narrative and discourse in, in the last two or three years, is that uh, the environmental crisis is serious. Uh, if you look at the World Economic Forum from last uh, year, in January, the report that they make on risk every year, you will see that uh, five out of five of the most impactful uh, issues that uh, leaders all over the world have identified, and that was January, um, are all related to basically to environmental impacts. And the pandemic in itself is, to some extent, uh, I would say a manifestation of those impacts on the environment, as we know, because we are consuming habitat for animal species, and this ends up in generating these uh, zoonotic diseases that we are dealing with uh, so soundly all over the world at the moment. So that's one thing for sure. Uh, the second thing is the and even more, even faster changes that we are experiencing in terms of uh, our cultural sphere, our political sphere, for example. 
So we now, in the last uh, few years, from uh, in the last five years, for example, uh, if I can relate, uh, for example, to the Trump presidency, we have seen happening uh, the decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese uh, economy. We now dealing with a multipolar world. It's no more the world that we used to deal with after the World War, the Second World War. It's much more multipolar, much more regional. Uh, there's much more conflicting uh, interests showing up. Plus, if you look at the political sphere, now increasingly we are basically overcoming the traditional political discourse into a discourse that is increasingly about uh, polarization between dissent and consensus. So it's no more about you know what party you you relate with. It's much more about what do you think about one specific thing, and this is because of social media. You know, social media have been reshaping our brains in ways that are very dangerous, I would say. And so this is one thing. Our new sphere, our, the sphere of how we build our culture is uh, really upside down at the moment. It's really, I would say, crazily being uh, stretched. And uh, uh, we kind of live through a, a very uh, deep uh, crisis of meaning and, and uh, um, sense-making, I would say, as citizens. So that's the second point. And the third point is that uh, we seem to need... I would say a new uh, human development thesis, because uh, what we have been uh, experiencing lately, it's, uh, uh, I would say, a machine, uh, and here I'm quoting my dear friend Indy Johar, that uh, your listeners should really look up. So Indy used to say that our the machine development thesis have been growing exponentially, while on the other hand, our human development thesis seems to have stalled. So, for example, if you think about what happens when these uh, autonomous algorithms uh, take a decision in just a milliseconds on, for example, what kind of shares they, they should be trading on, on the NASDAQ, this is something that happens without any, I would say, any active overseeing from humans. And increasingly, this is, um, I would say, a way to explain how many, many, many things happen in our society. So technology has been growing so much that we don't have anymore any reflective space in our cities, in our organizations. Everything is designed in this transactional way. And it's basically we are losing our capability to go to uh, govern complexity. Complexity is unfolding as a result of our interconnectivity, and we can we don't seem to be able to control it anymore. So we have we are living through a very profound institutional failure age uh, in terms of uh, the inability of our institutions to govern complexity. And we are seeing that with the pandemic, there was a, a very clear, I would say, um, a display of, uh, for example, how much our bureaucracies in Europe or in the US have been unable to allocate the capital that they had to protect people from a pandemic uh, disease. And this is what, what we have now. So as a closure of this reflection, in the center of all this, we need a new theory of organizing. We need a new way to organize ourselves because uh, organizing in networks or in general, organizing in this new risk landscape that we are experiencing every day, it's, uh, I would say, an, an imperative. We cannot sit and wait for, you know, our dear top-down institutions to solve our problems. 
we need to develop a new theory of organizing that works for a complex world. And uh, this is not a given. It's a problem. It's on our table now, and we have no solution yet. One of the key ideas I'm fascinated by is your reference to the future landscape of organizations and specifically this idea of unbundling of the firm. Talk about why that's important and how you believe rebuilding through this micro-entrepreneurship within large organizations will allow a more direct problem-solving, complex problem-solving. Well, well, in general, I mean, the abandoning of the firm is happening because uh, technology is it's making it possible. No? So essentially what technology is doing is that it's, uh, it's powering the small. So we used to, to think that size brought uh, power. Now, increasingly, if you are small, but uh, you can uh, summon, you can leverage, uh, and this is really the age of leverage. You can, if you can leverage on so many technological solutions, you can, for example, I mean, uh, the, the most stupid example is cloud. You know, you can create the most amazing uh, infrastructures online just by code. And some people is, uh, I would say, envisioning that in a couple of, in a few years, we will be able to do it by voice. So we'll be able to interact with computers and tell them what to do. And this may be bringing any, essentially any software mode existing in the world to zero, no? because when you, cha- you can just speak with computers, that's going to be massive. But having said that, so, so essentially this mode is becoming more powerful. And on the other hand, we are seeing also what uh, normally the or people would call the Fordist bundle. So this idea of the bundling between part of an organization and getting all the benefits, for example, in terms of welfare or or healthcare, or even in terms of leveraging a sales force, for example, or marketing capabilities. All these things are now available for small teams. So the micro-entrepreneurial unit is becoming much more powerful. So... That's a first trend. You know? That's why our organization are pushed to unbundle. Then the most pressing one, I think, it's also to acknowledge that uh, as Ross, Ross Ashby or even you know, Mel Conway have been teaching us in, the, in, the last, in a few decades ago, so essentially to deal with a complex system, you need a complex organization. You cannot deal with complexity with monolithic organizations because uh, for a simple reason because complexity is, is continuous change it's unpredictability and uh, these things tend to be to create issues that if you deal with them with a brittle system with a fragile system if something happens you create a catastrophe that is uh, you cannot uh, build as an organization instead if you have a structure that is based on these small in, uh, units interacting with each other and with inside and outside the organization, anything that happens that changes the rule of the context and makes a failure happen, it will happen in a bounded context. It will happen only in very small piece of your organization. So you basically generate, a, create an organization where, when new ideas can be born easily, but also new ideas can be, can die easily. Units can die easily. So that's, uh, that's really the, uh, the, the key point, I think, of embracing these networked ways of organizing. You know? so, so, so another point maybe, and then I'll stop, is, is this idea that change and growth are now so fast that, uh, to quote my, my friend Dave Snowden, you need an organization that has, uh, I would say, 
uh, an internal scaffolding. So it has like an internal, an endoskeleton versus an, an external scaffolding because the external scaffolding can be put into very d- dramatic pressure if you grow too fast, for example, or if uh, changes require you to change shape very fast. So that's, I think, why you need to develop an organization that is increasingly unbundled internally so that you can rebundle fast uh, across the organization and around opportunities that arise without uh, imposing too much stress on your fragilities and uh, avoiding uh, dramatic, uh, catastrophic uh, crashes in your company. Love the idea of internal scaffolding and the agility in which a lot of these organizations, but, but again, particularly mature or you know, companies and mature industries need to move to just be able to adapt to all the changes that are going on. Simona, one of the things we talked about was curve benders or relationships that profoundly change our direction, our destination. In thinking about your own background, where you've been, what you've done, your work around ecosystems and platforms, are there one or two individuals who've really shaped the leader that you've become? Well, many, I would say. Well, if I need to talk about one person, I would say, and then I will I would see if uh, somebody else comes to my mind. I was thinking about this question where you were asking, and I must mention Misha Bowen, so which, who is a director of the P2P Foundation, and uh, it's, it was really one of the first people that I've been following in the early 2010 uh, and, uh, you know, bringing forth this idea that the world was transitioning into networks, into, you know, ways that we can create value by interacting with each other instead of uh, just uh, having these contractual relationships with incumbent institutions. So I really need to uh, acknowledge this and, yeah, probably... I would say this is the, if I need to name one person, it would be Michelle. Are there some attributes you believe it takes to become a curve bender in the lives of others? So of the 70,000 or so folks that are using your platform and of the thousands you guys have trained and developed, Simona, people that you impact, what do you believe are some of the traits in profoundly getting others to think and lead differently? Well, if I must name one uh, characteristic that I would really encourage everybody to embrace is uh, to be open to look at the complexity that we are living in its entirety. So being honest about what changes are happening, the changes that are happening and uh, trying to really situate yourself uh, into this complexity, you know, instead of basically falling back into believing that uh, we still live in the, 20th cent- in the 20th century, because we are not. And I think uh, this is the first thing that the people need to understand. We're living in a nexus now, so it's normal that uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how our society, organizations, markets, civilization even, is going to work in 10 years from now. So the challenges that uh, await us are so deep and transformative that if you really want to have a role, if you really want to become uh, a leader in the next decade, you really need to be honest. You need to be ready to look at the, at the, I would say, at the depth of the rabbit hole 
And so prepare yourself to really show up in society and in the market and in your company with integrity, I would say, and with wholeness. So that's probably what I would like to share with our community of adopters. You've been listening to Simone Cicero, CEO of Boundaryless in Rome, Italy. He's also, the entire team has developed a fabulous platform called the Platform Design Toolkit. For our audience, we'll create a link to the executive summary of the, the white paper, New Foundations of Platform Ecosystem Thinking. Simona, thank you for being our guest on the Curvebenders podcast. It's been amazing. I'm looking forward to, to catch up with your listeners. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest update. What a fabulous conversation with Simone Cicero, CEO of Boundaryless. If you sharpen your listening, he's got brilliant ideas. And what I'm fascinated by is his approach to ecosystems and really platform thinking. And uh, I absolutely believe in his comments of complex problems cannot be solved by today's lethargic, bureaucratic, multi-layered organizations. And his micro-entrepreneurship, his unbundling of the firm idea, evident by the title of the session, really resonated with me. So here are the Nor notes, three quick summaries. Hopefully, you'll take your implement into your team, your organization. Number one, listen to what I asked them about what it takes to be a curve bender. And I love his comment, open to look at the complexity in its entirety, honesty about the changing landscape. I still run into individuals, teams, and organizations who are in absolute denial that this pandemic is going to profoundly change what they've been doing. And I recently heard somebody else say, business as usual, BAU is dead. So if you're still thinking we're going to go back to something, I don't think that's going to happen. So you got to think ahead. You got to look ahead. You got to really start believing in How will you choose to think and lead differently in the evolution of your business? Number one. Number two, listen to the challenges that he talked about in organizations becoming much more dynamic, becoming much more agile, responsive, adaptive, right? Inertia, culture, policy. Do you have positive forward thinking, forward moving inertia to really change things? Or you're still held back on the before COVID mindset, tool set, skill set, uh, culture. Is your culture one that creates awareness and recognition and rewards prudent risk-taking? Is it one that unafraid of 
a retribution? Is it one that is willing to make some bets, knowing that some of those bets will go nowhere, uh, but the ones that hit are going to be you know, you know, the future of the business? If not, what has to happen for you to evolve that way? And then policy is a lot about governance. Policy is a lot about how to engage the next generation of your talent. Last but not least, I cannot recommend their platform. They really have built a really interesting uh, company, Boundaryless, but also their platform design toolkit uh, is, is really a brilliant approach to extending the business model canvas. So check it out. We'll put links on our blog and in the show notes of this episode. Uh, and I hope you'll continue to not just come back and listen to future episodes, but I hope you'll join us uh, as Simona will be our guest on our Twitter chat. So just search for the hashtag Curvebenders and join us on uh, noon Eastern uh, to engage Simona in an online Q&A. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress. 